this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to pick up where we left off in A Reason to Dream, this series on Joseph. So let's stand, turn to Genesis chapter 40. And I've titled the sermon this morning, When It's Hard to Look Up, Reach Out. When it's hard to look up, reach out. You might be amazed at what God will do. Uh, we'll just read the first eight verses, and then we'll see how the story unfolds after that. It says, after this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and his baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Now, these these two individuals would have been considered, you might say, well, the cupbearer and the baker, they were kind of small roles. No, these were big-time roles and the life because they were charged with defending the very life of Pharaoh in so many ways. And so he put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard and in prison where Joseph was confined. And by the way, I don't believe in a coincidence. God was orchestrating these events. The captain of the guard assigned Joseph to them, and he became their personal attendant. And they were in custody for some time. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each had a dream. Ah, Joseph's specialty, right? Both had a dream on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they looked distraught. You ever had a nightmare and you looked different? <laughs> the next day. It was so real you could actually remember it. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are, you, why are your faces sad today? We had dreams, they said to him, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And Joseph was right where God had placed him to do a ministry in a difficult situation. Father, Lord, I know that as I'm standing here looking out this morning, that there are people going through their own difficult seasons. Some are getting good news, as we've heard of a new life that's come into our church, and we celebrate with Adam and Rebecca the birth of their child, and so many others in our church that just got great praise reports. And Lord, some get difficult news, Lord, as we're preparing a, a memorial service next Saturday for Karen Shell and praying for her family. Lord, throughout the families in this congregation, so many have good news, so many have bad news, and many are hearing both at the same time. Lord, help us to understand that we are where we are, not by accident, but for your glory. Give us understanding of your word and how it applies to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I heard um, several years ago, I believe it was, that uh, an unusual change had taken place in one of the most violent prisons in our nation, uh, the prison in southern Louisiana, Angola, federal penitentiary there. They, it was one of the most violent places 
that a prisoner could find themselves, and many who were there were there for life because of their own crimes. But something began to change in that prison. A New Orleans seminary went in and began to train lifers who had become Christians in the Word of God. And in, in that process, they began to train prisoners to be chaplains in the prison. It's like you're, you feel called to serve the Lord you're in here for the rest of your life, and so you're going to be the chaplains in the As prisoners, you'll be chaplains in the prison. And it turned that prison upside down. And the testimonies of what God was doing in this prison that was so violent have been astounding, so much so that other prisons are following their model. Isn't it funny how we, we can kick God out of our schools, but then when the kids get in trouble, we're like, well, we need him back in our prisons. Maybe if we would get it on the right side of things, we could keep a lot of people out of prison. But nonetheless, this training goes on. People like Joe Gibbs Racing have gotten on board. My son was excited to know uh, there at Southeastern that Joe Gibbs was on campus, uh, I think, year before last as they were establishing a partnership with Southeastern Seminary to take uh, these classes to train ministers, to train chaplains of Christians within the prison system so while they're prisoners, they can minister to others. Joseph was a minister in this prison context. If we went back to the last of our last message in chapter 39, we see that when Joseph was placed in that prison for a crime he didn't commit, that the warden didn't bother with anything, verse 23 says, under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. Everything that we saw when things were going good in Joseph's life and, and discovered that the Lord was with him, even when things were not going good, it seemed, in his life, God's hand was still upon him. And the Lord made everything that he did. Even in the prison, his, his prison ministry became successful even as a prisoner and eventually a custodian of the prison himself. He could have cried out, life is not fair, but instead he cried out, uh, my God is good and faithful and true, and he will make all things right in his time. It may not even be for some of us this side of heaven, but I guarantee you one day Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will make all things right. Joseph was not the only one in prison. Remember when we saw in his temptations, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has taken you except that which is common to man. And so with the temptations or with the trials of life, whatever you're going through, God will not put more on you than you can handle and you can be assured that others are going through similar circumstances because that which we face is common to man. So those, those curveballs that come our way, those situations that become opportunities, those prisons that become mission fields and stepping stones for the glory of God, that's a common path that he makes available. Joseph is with two officers, and in this prison, one is going to get some good news this morning, and one is going to get the worst news he could possibly receive. We often like to compare our news with the news that others get, don't we? If we get good news, there's somebody out there that when we share that good news, they've got to one-up us. 
You ever been around? That's especially, I won't pick on our high school boys, but boy, high school boys get to bragging about things, and one talks about something he did, and, one, and it's a little bit bigger for somebody else or something they experience. And by the way, those stories, as we become older men, get bigger and bigger, don't they? You, you can sit in a high school locker room, and the boys are going to one-up each other with their stories, or you can go hang out at Hardy's with a group of older men, and they're going to one-up each other with their stories. And sometimes we do the same thing from a negative context. Somebody's gone through a bad situation in life. We know that somebody else has got some worse news to share. Oh, well, your problem's not anything like my problem. You think you got bad news. You, you think what you went through was difficult. Let me tell you my story because we're so tempted to compare ourselves and want to one-up one another. Now, is it comforting to know that somebody is getting some better news than you today and somebody's getting some worse news than you today? Well, sometimes it's a little bit comforting, right? But it's not so comforting. It doesn't change our situation. The thing that changes our situation is when we get our eyes off of self and begin to, in the midst of our prisons, in the midst of our temptations and struggles and trials, we begin to say, listen, I'm not going to one-up everybody with my problems or with my blessings. I'm going to minister to them within this context. And we'll be amazed at how our situation reveals to us God's presence in our life when we think about what others are going through. John Piper wrote a, a blog years ago entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And I, I, it's, you can look it up online. It's a great article. He gives you 10 things that could cause you to be wasting, and you could apply that to any trial that you go through in life. But number 10, he said, you will be wasting your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and to the glory of Christ. And I would apply that to any trial that you would go through in life when things don't go your way. That's an opportunity for you to be a witness to the truth and to the glory of Christ. So what did he do in this situation? What did Joseph do to show that he was reaching out when it was hard to look up? And you can learn from him this morning, church. I can learn from him. It's, it's been amazing. I've had to apply these principles every week that I've prepared to share them with you. It is so real because there are so many of you this morning that have been through something recently or in the middle of something now, or you're about to go through something that you don't even know is coming. You'll remember that I said this, but you're about to go through something you don't even know is coming that's going to make it difficult to look up. And I want to challenge you. It's okay, by the way, to cry out, God, where are you in this? I don't see it. But while you're crying out, and while it's difficult to look up, start reaching out and see what God does. What does he do? He offers hospitality, first of all, to those who felt rejected. We need to, in our times of not being able to look up, reach out and offer hospitality to those who feel rejected. Those first eight verses we read a moment ago, we see that Joseph had a stewardship there where he was confined. The captain of the guard, verse 4, assigned Joseph to these men, this cupbearer and this baker, 
that Pharaoh had gotten bent out of shape with. He was ticked off for some reason, and we don't know what it was. We don't know if they were guilty or they were innocent, but they were there, and they were in need, and Joseph was now going to be their attendant, the one to minister to them in that situation. You say, offer hospitality in a prison? No way. Listen to the words of Jesus. You've heard the story. You've heard the parable. Matthew chapter 25 And I'll start with verse 34 and jump right in. Jesus is telling this parable about when he comes again, but he uses a king to illustrate the story. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When were you sick or or in prison and we visited you? And you know how Jesus responds, or the king here responded, but Jesus saying that's how he's going to respond to us one day. As you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When you reach out and love people in the name of Jesus, you are reaching out to Jesus and loving him. Luke chapter 10 tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he illustrates for us that when the religious crowd wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, somebody who was unlikely to minister in a situation because of maybe the way they would have been looked upon reached out to somebody in need and took care of them. Do you know what prompted Jesus telling that story? It was somebody understanding that the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the religious crowd said, well, who is my neighbor? And so he answers that question by saying, basically, whether they're like you or not, anybody you see in need, as you, show to, as you show hospitality to those who feel rejected in life, going through a difficult season of life, instead of focusing on all that you're going through and wonder, you know, the, the little song that the little girls used to sing when I was a kid, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms or whatever. Instead of uh, the, the, the old hee-haw song, gloom, despair, and agony on me, deep, dark, depression, excessive misery, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, gloom, despair, and agony on me, start looking at what somebody else is going through and reach out to them even out of your own pain. Jesus crossed cultural boundaries, social norms, geographical boundaries to say even to a woman at a well one day, that I am your neighbor. I'm here to be a blessing to you. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts uh, John 1, 14, where we read the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The message says, and the word moved into our neighborhood. Jesus came to where we are because he loves us to, to demonstrate his love for us, ultimately to die for the sins of the world, to give his life a ransom for many. We're called to reach out to those who feel rejected. And we need to be willing to cross socioeconomic, cultural, geographical boundaries. If it means go to Atlanta or Kentucky or to eastern North Carolina or even Peru. 
and discover the needs that people in our world have. It's one reason I love for people to go on a mission trip because you get to know and love and serve people who are different and not like you, and it makes you better at doing that when you get back home. When I was in Peru, I thought, you know, I'm going to just kind of watch our team serve, and I'm going to teach pastors while I'm over here. And then that Sunday morning, I get picked up by a pastor's son, and he's explaining to me about his dad's church where he also leads the worship, and he was going to serve as my interpreter that day. And he said, but, you know, my dad's going through a difficult season of life. Well, really, it's my mom. My mom is battling a a unique kind of cancer, and she has to get treatment in Lima, and she has to stay there. So it's been hard for my dad to pastor this church that also has satellite churches and to drive back and forth from Lima to here, which would have been several hours of transportation or when they would fly It would be difficult to come up with the resources and things like that. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, you know, the things I hear pastors in the United States complain about sometimes, and this pastor is serving faithfully. I got a heart for the people in that church, a heart for the people in Peru, and discovered that my neighbor is somebody who is in another hemisphere. So we're willing to cross boundaries. We got to be willing to even cross boundaries the street, (laughs) to minister to those who are around us, to show hospitality. As a church, I pray we will be known for showing hospitality. That's one reason it's so important that we get real with our own struggles and get real with our own problems so that when people who need Jesus come in can see that we're just normal people like anybody else, but we know who has the answer for those needs. To whom can you be a neighbor? Listen, somebody's going to be in better shape than you, and somebody's going to be in worse shape to you. Doesn't matter. Reach out to them. Young people, children, students, there's going to be a bully from a broken home. And the very reason they're acting like a bully is because nobody's ever showed them what love is. Reach out to them. You're going to go somewhere to eat today. There's going to be a waiter with overwhelming bills to pay. You can complain about their service, or you can be a blessing to them. Maybe someone in a different country, somebody from a different background, someone that doesn't look or act or talk like you. So let's show hospitality those who need refuge in those times. Secondly, I want us to learn to offer help. I'm preaching to me here, but offer help to those who seek restoration. Let's look at the story in the dream of the cupbearer for a moment. The cupbearer was one who would have to actually even taste the wine in case somebody's trying to poison the king. So he, he's kind of like a member of the Secret Service, not just somebody who runs errands. And so he would have been an officer with great responsibilities and probably oversight of a lot of other individuals. And in verse 9, it says, The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine, there were branches As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I squeezed them in the Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. I said, man, it's like I took care of the whole process to serve Pharaoh. And this is its interpretation, Joseph said. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your position. Good news. Man, that which 
you had a vision of, it's what you had, had dreamed about all along, and God's going to restore your dream. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. And but by the way, he says in verse 14, when all goes well, remember that I was with you. Kind of like that thief on the cross, remember the one who believed, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you hear this cupbearer saying that? Look, you know, when you're back in good standing, will you remember me? Please show kindness to me. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison, for I was kidnapped in the land of the Hebrews. And even though I've done nothing, that they should put me in this dungeon. You know, he, he's like, man, I'm, I don't belong here. Now, a lot of people would have at that time said, yeah, sure, that's what everybody says. I didn't do anything. But nonetheless, he, he gave him a vision for restoration. And, and he says, look, you're going to do well again. You're going to be living the dream again. Listen, you're three days away from being out of here. Romans 12, 15 tells us in the first part to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, it goes on to tell us to weep with those who weep, and we're going to get there in just a moment, but to rejoice with those who who rejoice. And we struggle with that, especially when somebody is rewarded with something we wanted. Joseph wanted out. It wasn't fair that he was there. And so many times as Christians, we have a hard time rejoicing with someone who gets what we wanted. It can go all the way back to, remember your middle school days? Guys might know the story. Maybe this happened to you. Maybe you weren't this guy. I probably was a few times. But you're that middle school boy, and you've got a crush on that girl. And, and you're trying to get up the nerve to talk to her. And she's been kind of polite to you lately, and she kind of smiles when she walks by. And you just want to have the nerve to speak to that pretty little girl. And, and before you can get up the nerve, she starts the conversation. And it goes something like this. Is so-and-so your friend? Y- yeah. Will you find out if he likes me because I kind of like him? And you're like, no, he's not my friend. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to speak to him again. Because I can't rejoice that you like him when I wanted you to like me. Man, our friendship's over. That's the way we are. That's that, that carnal nature. You think it leaves then? You wait till you're working with somebody else who gets a promotion when you think you deserved it. I can't believe they got that promotion. Did they realize what she's like? Do they not know what he does? When they get playing time and you don't get playing time, well, that's not fair. And we can't rejoice with those who rejoice when we should celebrate. Listen, some of the times that I was most proud of my son, and I I know that Coach Smith and Coach Metz will appreciate this this morning. Nobody else may, and that's okay, but they'll appreciate it. Some of the times I was most proud of my son was not when his number was called and he got in the game, but when his buddy did something awesome and came off the field, and my son was the first one there to celebrate with him and rejoice with him and say, good job. And that caused him to be honored later on. Can we rejoice with those who get good news? Can can we get excited about our brothers and our sisters when they get the raise, when they get the promotion, when they get the opportunity to serve the Lord? 
If you're still in a different place, God has a reason for you. I remember, you know, Trinity's been doing the, the summer ministry assistant, the internships, going all the way back to when I was a teenager, so you can do the math. That's a long time ago. And I remember one particular summer, I was wanting to serve as a summer intern, and they said, well, here's, here's the deal, you know, you, you know you've kind of already been there, done that, and we're going to give some other people the opportunity. And I thought, but, but I'm preparing for a ministry. I need this opportunity to prepare for ministry. And, and so my dad said, look, we need some help. They hire college help at that time. They were still hiring. but They hire college help. At, uh, it was Westinghouse, then ABB, then Power Partners. And, and uh, he says, by the way, you'll make a lot more money. You make about twice as much as you would have made doing a summer ministry job. Said, oh, but I'm called to ministry. But instead, I found myself on an assembly line welding leads onto transformer coils all day long, and sometimes pulling the coils from racks and sending them on down the line. Routine, same thing, all day long. But you know what God did? He strategically put me between two Jehovah's Witnesses, and that was my summer ministry. It did more to train me in theology than any job I had ever had because I had to know my stuff to talk to these two Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of them, I think I was making a little progress with. And you know what's even better than that? Here's where where God took this ministry. Yeah, ministry opportunity that I was getting paid good money for. There was a crowd in that section that did not like these two Jehovah's Witness. I I don't want to use the word redneck, um, but there was a crowd that didn't like these two Jehovah's Witness. But they liked me because I disagreed with them and argued with them all day long and I knew my stuff. And they would say, hey, Rev, that's the, the kind of the guy who was the lead, leader of the pack there. He would say, hey, Rev, during the break, come over here and tell us what we're to say to those Jehovah's Witnesses. So what I was doing during the break was preaching the gospel to those other men. They were hearing the gospel. God took a situation that I thought was less than desirable and said, man, I've got you right where I want you. This is your ministry this summer. How do we look at those situations? God puts us in a place to offer help to those who seek restoration. What prevents us from rejoicing in those moments? It could be jealousy. It could be self-centeredness. It could be that we're so concerned with fairness that we forget that Paul told the church at Philippi, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, consider others better than yourself so that you can rejoice when God is advancing and blessing them. And when you rejoice in that, it's like you kind of move along with them. But listen, just as there was somebody who was going to get better news than Joseph, be assured there was somebody who's going to get a lot worse news than Joseph. Remember, we said Joseph could have been killed, but he wasn't. He could have been executed, but he wasn't. Potiphar could have had him put to death, but he wasn't. Not everybody gets that same escape. Offer hope to those who need a refuge. It's our third principle this morning. Offer hope to to those who need a refuge. Look at verses 16 through 19 to see the dream that really did become a nightmare. The chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive. Man, good, good news. He's he's all about good news. He's one of those feel-good preachers. I love it. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the third, I'm sorry, but the birds were eating them 
out of the basket on my head. (laughs) This is the interpretation. Joseph replied, the three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift your head from off you. While he will lift the face of the cupbearer, he will literally lift your head. You will be hanged on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from your body. He didn't sugarcoat the news at all. People need loving honesty. They need great compassion. Now we have to read a little bit between the lines here. We, we aren't told everything that Joseph says to this baker. We have to, best we can tell, discerning the integrity in the heart of Joseph as the great scholar John Phillips imagined it, he says, sadly, Joseph told the beggar to prepare for death and no doubt put his arms around the poor fellow's shoulders and sought to kindle in his pagan breast a knowledge of the true and living God. You've got three days. At some point in life, we need to embrace Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor to the soul steadfast and sure. And once we've embraced that, we need to take that hope and apply 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. If you've got the hope, even in the worst of circumstances, isn't it amazing? God will allow you to go through the worst of circumstances so that others can see that the hope is real. So many times we fail the test. When we go through the worst of circumstances, we act like our life has fallen apart rather than God is in control. But here he's able to give a reason for the hope that is in him. Someone's getting worse news than you. And if they are without Jesus, it is infinitely and eternally worse news than you could ever receive. I remember when we moved from Wilmington, North Carolina to the town of Leland. By the way, we need to pray for those folks. They have uh, been digging out from these floodwaters and will continue to to do so for a long time. But we had been commuting to the church where I served several miles uh, from Wilmington into Leland and the Lord opened up a home for us to rent right there across from the church where I was serving. And our next door neighbors were a couple by the name of Dwayne and Mary Ellen Milligan. They were in their mid-50s. Sweet couple. He, he helped me with so, Mr. Dwayne helped me with so many things. And they had attended a church that was all about religion, but didn't talk a lot about a relationship. And so he started popping in on the early service at our church. And man, he'd hit the altar and he would pray and he'd talk about how awesome it is that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He eventually, he and his wife joined our church. He was baptized. When Kent was born and grew, they kind of enjoyed watching him grow on one side of the fence, and Kent enjoyed watching their little boy can spaniels play on. The, he was a big time bird hunter and had boykins, and they, Kent loved watching the dogs. He'd walk over, Mr. Dwayne would pick him up and let him play with the dogs. One day, the lady across the road who happened to be our church organist, her name was Rachel, comes to me with a panicked look and says, 
I need your help. I just found out that Mr. Dwayne passed away while he was bird hunting today. Had a heart attack, fell right there beside his birds. His dog, they found the dogs sitting there still beside him. And Mary Ellen doesn't know. His wife doesn't know. And here I am, this minister in my 20s, and I'm thinking, I need to go get the senior pastor. Let him handle this one, right? My heart was ripped out at this moment. And, and Mary Ellen begins to pull out of her driveway. She's got this sweet look on her face as she always did. She doesn't have a clue that her husband is in heaven with Jesus. And I realize it's my responsibility at that moment to share that with her. Folks, that's one of the hardest things that a young minister ever had to do. And I stopped her car in the street, literally right in front of my house. And she goes, no, I've got to go. I've got to go. I'll talk to you. I said, Mary, I need you to stop. And the best way I knew how, as compassionately as I knew how, I said, Mr. Dwayne passed away while he was hunting today, and he is with Jesus. He went to be with the Lord. And I had to help her as Rachel drove her car back over to the home. I had to help her walk back to her house. And as a young preacher boy, I just didn't know what, there was nothing I really could say. The only hope that I had was that I knew that he had discovered the riches of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I knew that that day as I shared at his funeral later that when he had killed his limit and looked at his dog and said, we killed our limit. By the way, he had killed his limit. It was in the bucket. But he said, we've killed the limit. We got to go home. That God said, that's right. Come on home. And God called him home that day. Folks, I don't know what hope people have without a relationship with Christ. I don't know what we have to offer. Listen, the only thing that I could offer as hope for Mr. Dwayne was that he was with Jesus and so that when my young son who was learning how to talk could say, where's Dwayne? I could say, he's in heaven. The only hope that I could offer his sweet wife is that he is in heaven. Somebody's going to get worse news than you. But you can offer them the hope of eternity, the hope that we have in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me?